Genesis 5, and you probably are looking at it already going, oh man, here we go. Um, We're going to read through this, and I'm going to try to keep the pace up, so if you could just stick with me, we'll we'll get through it together. Um, So let's begin. Verse 1, chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So as we can see here, we see this recurring theme, and it's what we kind of named our verse-by-verse study in Genesis, is created in his image. That's how God intended it to be. And he says right there again, just in case we hadn't been paying attention, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. God reiterates this, and I think it's important that we notice that this is what God intends for all of us. And a couple weeks ago, we looked in Ephesians, and we talked about how we are to be in the likeness of Christ now. Um, And you can refer back to that teaching if you choose to do so. But because of the fall, as you can see, it says in verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in what? In his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. When Adam sinned on the you know, by taking of the fruit that God had commanded him not to take, he didn't get to pass on that distinction of being a son of, you know, a son of God and a creation of God directly in the image of God. He instead got to pass on death to his children and his own image, the sinful nature that is pushed through our entire generation and comes down to us. It leads us, the sin that Adam committed is ultimately the sin that we are under and the penalty for which is death. Um, and we'll see that in verse 4. And five, the days of Adam after he named, uh, sorry, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Those three words uh, should make us stagger a bit. And he died. It's the first time that we see the fulfillment of what God said in Genesis. 217, he said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the enemy said, you're not going to die. I don't think you're going to die. That doesn't make any sense. And what happened? They ate of the fruit. And what happened? Did they fall down? Did they breathe their last? They didn't. 930 years, I guess, if you want to calculate it that way. They died physically. But when they, when they sinned, The idea of them being in the image of God and having that spiritual connection with God was broken and they spiritually died. But now we see the physical fulfillment in the fact that Adam dies 930 years later. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That's what we live under if we're not uh, in Christ. And that's what we'll see is the recurring theme as we read through the next 14 verses. So bear with me. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. 
When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Surprise, surprise. Just like that verse said in Romans, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. That's what it means when it says that Adam fathered a son in his own image, his own likeness. That is the likeness of death. That is what he passed on, and we see that until we get to verse 21. Sorry. We meet this guy named Enoch, and it says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, and if you know anything about the Bible, you may remember Methuselah for being the oldest person ever to live. That's his claim to fame. Uh, And he's also the son of Enoch. Enoch walked with God, it says, after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And it's interesting that it says this. It says, after he fathered Methuselah, he walked with God for 300 years. So up to this point, he may have been just following in the footsteps of the culture. He has a son, which, depending on the the translation of the wording, I, I asked somebody who speaks fluent Hebrew what it means, and their answer was completely different than what it said in the Hebrew lexicon that I read, so you can take that for what it's worth. Methuselah either means man of the, the spear or dart, or his death shall send it. Um, most people that I've read and, and people that I've asked that know Hebrew say it means his death shall send it. So when Methuselah was born, Enoch had a revelation that there was something coming. Uh, and we see that over uh, the course of the scriptures. We see how Enoch had this relationship with God and he was a prophet, it says, in Jude. Um, so once Methuselah is born, Enoch decides, I need to get right with God. And he walks with him for 300 years. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. You're like, what does that mean? Where did that come from? I thought it was supposed to be, and he died. Um, Enoch walked with God. The Septuagint, which is the uh, original Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which I think happened like a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, translates that as he pleased God. And when we see it referenced in Hebrews, that's how they describe it. So when sin entered the world, we saw that God walked in the garden. If you remember the story, it says, after man uh, sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did they do? They hid themselves because sin had now put this wedge between their relationship with God. And they decided, God's coming, let's hide. They had a contrary uh, opinion of who God was at that point. They went their own way. Here we have a statement about a man who walked with God or was in step with God. We'll also see the same description of Noah in chapter 6, verse 9. So in Amos 3.3, if we're going to talk about walking with God, what does that mean? Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? And then a next verse says, Genesis 17.1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. So when we talk about walking with God and what Enoch did, he saw God for who he was and decided I'm going to go in the same direction as him. Wherever he goes, I go. And 
which when he, you look at the culture around him, was completely different. Because we'll see in chapter 6, nobody was doing this. So we see Enoch is described as having walked with God. Noah is described as having walked with God. And what happens? If you're familiar with the story, Enoch is actually saved from death and is taken up into heaven before he dies. So he's preserved from the judgment that's to come. Noah walked with God, and he was set aside and put into an ark to protect him from the flood that would destroy all mankind. Walking with God and being in tune with God is our protection. It's how we are... um, that's how we're called to live. And we did the series Walk This Way a couple weeks ago and talking about what, it, what does it mean to walk with God or to walk in faith. Uh, so you could refer to that if you choose. But Micah 4, 5 says, For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And isn't this the way of the world? We see people, they walk the way they want to walk. I, I stand up for this. I'm, I'm a Democrat. I'm a liberal. I'm conservative. I'm socially, uh, socially conservative, fiscally liberal, whatever, and these people identify with whatever their passion is. That's how they find their identity. And these people walk each in the name of his God. And that's what we've talked about idolatry before, and and Chris talked about it on Sunday. Like, they were worshiping what they thought was God, and it was actually demonic forces. And they were opening themselves up to tons of just complete debauchery and sin, because they were worshiping the God that they chose. And we saw in Romans 1 how it says they suppress the truth and they worship the creation rather than the creator. Micah 4, 5, we walk in the name of our own God. And then he says, no, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And then in Micah 6, 8, it says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So, the idea that Enoch walked with God is very important for us to see that. And when we look in the New Testament, when we see the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, it says, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So it wasn't just Enoch was over here hidden. Ah, me and God are like this. Everybody else is doing whatever. He had this testimony People knew that Enoch, man, ever since he had Methuselah, something's different about that guy. You know, he he has a testimony that he pleased God. Everything that he did pointed to the fact of who his God was and who he what God he was walking in the name of, you know, or however it was worded before. So it's very important that we look at this and it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That's the first step, believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The word rewarder can also be seen as somebody who pays wages. You know, if someone who has racked up or or, or accrued payment, and then the person who actually delivers that payment. So you could say, in this case, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He pays the wages of those, you know, and we see in, in Romans 6 where it says the wages of sin is death. So I know a lot of times people see this verse as, oh, God's going to reward me because I'm walking with him. That's why I'm going to walk with him, so I get his rewards. I actually read it differently because if you look at what the word means, it says someone who pays the wages. So if we seek God and we put our faith in him, it says believe that he is, he's going to pay those wages. The, the wages of sin, that's death, he makes that payment. So that's a different way to look at it if you choose. Um, and then we know in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And a lot of times we take the Old Testament and we say, The Old Testament is, do good things, and God will be happy. The New Testament is, God does all the good things, 
and we just get to benefit from it. Isn't that awesome that God changed how he likes to work with people? Right? It gets dangerous, though, because we start to think of God as different. But the New Testament points to the Old Testament and says, no. It was always about a belief in God. It was always about what our hearts were worshiping. It was always about that. And Enoch is a testimony of that. He believed God. He walked with him, which is exactly what the New Testament tells us to do. Believe in God and just walk. You know, we looked at that before. The work, Jesus said, you know, this is the work of God, to believe on the one that he has sent. So we believe in him. And then we see over and over again in the New Testament, just walk. Walk in newness of life. God's given you the new life. Just walk it out. That's what Enoch did. That's what Noah did. Abraham, it said, he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So it comes, it's the, it's the same God that we're dealing with, which is a good thing and also can be a scary thing as we progress through the next few chapters. Because God does not think lightly of sin. And while we always want to be uh, careful not to attribute attributes or, or to, to link attributes of God to like man, like, well, man gets angry even if it's for an unjust reason and all that stuff. God's not like that. God is pure and holy, and everything he does is right. Sometimes we can gloss over the fact that God deals uh, drastically with sin. He dealt so drastically with sin that he sent his own son, who was the fullness of God, and allowed him to be killed by the hands of sinful man. That's how, that's how much God hates sin. So when we look at this, the, um, the flood... Let's not forget that. It's the same God we're dealing with, which is a good thing and also a very humbling thing because we need to make sure that we are believing in him and we are allowing him to be our covering, to be our protection. We're not relying in the fact that we do good stuff sometimes. Noah built the ark because he believed God. He didn't believe God because he built the ark. You know what I mean? Or, or his building the ark didn't show that he believed God. Um, so let's move on. Uh, We'll finish the rest of this chapter. It says, When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after... He fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were, and this is interesting, because up to this point, we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, 65, 90, 60. We see these round numbers. And then we have this 777 years, which is kind of crazy, because if you know anything about numerology in the Bible and stuff, seven is always like a number of completion. So we see that. Lamech dies and he's 777 years old. It's just interesting to see that because Noah, it says, was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we got through that genealogy. It didn't take us very long. Now we're going to move into chapter 6, which is the story I don't recall in Sunday school. Uh, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. All right, so what? (laughs) 
we're, we're, we're tracking really good right here. We're like, okay, this guy, he lived, he had some kids, had a long life, and he died. Then it kind of got weird when we saw this guy just like disappear off the face of the earth with no explanation whatsoever. Okay, that's kind of weird. And now what? Right? The sons of God, okay, who are they? We don't know. The daughters of men, okay, who are they? We don't know. They got together, had some kids, and they were called Nephilim. And they move on to the story. And you're like, what? Thanks for the explanation. It's really great. I'm really glad you did that. A lot of people will spend, and I will spend a few minutes talking about this, but they spend too much time talking about the first four verses of this chapter and forget the whole purpose of the chapter and the whole purpose of the Bible, I think. We have to remember that the main point of this passage is not the identity of the individuals mentioned in this chapter. It's the behavior of mankind that had become so vile that God was actually sorry that he created man on the earth. Can you think about that? The God who made man in his image and his likeness was like, ah, what are they doing down there? I can't, they're beyond hope. I have to start over. That's the main point of the flood. And everybody gets hung up in the first four verses. And the reason is, with justly, you're like, what does this mean? Okay, who were these sons of God who took wives? Who were the daughters of men? Who did they marry? Who are the Nephilim? We ask all these questions. Really quickly, I'm going to go over some of the views. I'm just going to hint at them, and I'm going to leave it up to you because there's no consensus. Because, as again, it doesn't say in the Bible that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that, the Lord raised, and that God raised him from the dead and believe that the Nephilim were X, Y, and Z, you are saved. So... Keep that in mind, because I think sometimes people get so hung up, and they're like, no, but, it, but it's this, it's this. And everybody gets angry, and the church falls apart because you don't believe that this person is this in Genesis. So the number one that I'll talk about is that the sons of God were fallen angels. That's what I grew up hearing, and that's kind of what a lot of people I know believe, and that the daughters of men were humans, that they, the, the fallen angels, once Satan fell, took third of the angels with them. They were kind of roaming around on the earth, taking on human form, and they thought, ah, that girl's good looking. I'm going to take her as my wife. And because of that weird genetic breed, these giants were born. Okay? That's where Goliath came from. That's where all these mighty men came from. Okay? There's also a second view. And actually, when I did research on this, I thought there was two views. There's actually five. I don't know if you knew that. Five views about who these people are. So we'll briefly hint at them. Uh, another very popular view is that they were the godly line of Seth. The sons of God were, were Seth because Seth was the replacement for Abel. Adam was a son of God. It says in Luke that Adam was the son of God. So Seth is kind of the new lineage of who the Messiah would come through from. So the sons of God is not too far off, and that's what that is. And the ungodly line of Cain is who the daughters of men are. So you know, God had set Seth apart. He was supposed to be the righteous line. And now they started to intermarry and it, everybody just got really wicked. Okay. Then there's this other interpretation that the sons of God were sons of great rulers that existed on the earth at that time. And the daughters of men were these, you know, what are they called? Lay, lay people, commoners, um, which, yeah. Okay. So you have these righteous people, these noble blood, Right. Uh, and then you have these street people or just paupers and normal people. And they started to intermarry. And for some reason, things got really out of hand and God destroyed the world. Um, then you have kind of like a hybrid, no pun intended, view, which is that they were human men and human women, but the men were demon-possessed. 
There hasn't been a, a mention of demons up to this point in the Bible, so that's interesting. Um, and then the fifth and final view, which is a minority view, is that it was just men and women. They just got together, got married, and God said, what are you doing? I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. It's not really a view that people hold to that I've ever heard, but it's in there. They throw it in there. So really quickly, let's take a look at these. The first one, the fallen angels and humans. In First Peter, I mean, there's three New Testament passages that people use to back this view up. Um, first Peter 3, if we can put that up. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And I'm, just re- I'm not reading this in a dismissive way because it's very important. We're going to talk about it later, but just to get to the next verse in the context. Uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in verse 19. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So people say those spirits that are in prison were the spirits that fell and sinned by going into the daughters of men before Noah, before the flood. So God judged them through the flood, and Jesus went and preached victory over them, saying, I've won because I defeated death on the cross. I always kind of interpreted it that way, but upon looking at it, there actually is no explanation that he's talking about those people, and it's not talking about angels, it's talking about spirits. So do your own homework. You can figure out what, if that verse really is saying that. Uh, the next verse is Second Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And then he goes into a little tangent, but then finishes his thought in verse 9. You can skip ahead to verse 9 of Second Peter. There you go. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So in the context of Second Peter, he's saying, listen, God knows how to separate the just and the unjust. He judged the angels who fell. He judged the world and kept Noah safe. And he knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And most people will read these verses and say, yep, that's the fallen angels in Genesis 6 that sinned with the women, and then God sent the flood. But it actually doesn't connect those two things. It's just one after another. I'm just saying. It doesn't, it doesn't say that it was the angels' sin of going into the humans and, and siring offspring. We know that the angels fell with Lucifer, and it could be that sin. So uh, I'm not saying this to, like, shatter anybody's belief. Again, I said we believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified and his resurrection and ascension. That's how we are Christians. But it's important that we know what we... We don't want to uh, become dogmatic about things that the Scripture does not specifically, explicitly say. Uh, Jude 6 is another one. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Semicolon. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a, in a manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now that's one that I can say, yeah, that, that seems to link things, but it depends on the translation that you have. Because some translations have it saying that in the manner of these being... Sodom and Gomorrah, that sin was like the sin of the angels going after strange flesh. But other translations say that the manner of these is talking about the surrounding cities because it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. So it depends on the emphasis and the Greek and all that stuff. So 
What does that all mean? If the sons of God were not fallen angels but humans, then we're left with four possible answers to that identity. Now, I will say that this is the, the, the view that I tend to hold. So I'm not trying to take it apart and say, no, this is stupid. I'm saying, like, this is actually what I believe. But in doing the research, I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm not a genius. I don't know the answer. And all these other people have answers that are just as valid, I think. Um, and then we have the, the godly line view, a popular view that sees the Son of God. Um, and there's some issues with that as well. The, my biggest concern would be if these two people were intermarrying and they were getting so evil. I don't see when it says that the Nephilim were on the earth. It says also afterward. I don't know what that also afterward means because the flood, I would think, it would have destroyed them all. Um, but the more I read this view, it seems plausible. And then the ancient rulers and the commoners seems interesting too because What's commonly misstated is that every time the term sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it's referring to angels, which isn't actually true. There are certain times in the Old Testament where it refers to being sons of the living God, or you are gods, it actually says, and it's talking to the judges. So I can understand why they have this idea of like the ancient rulers being the sons of God. So um, all that to say, I know i kind of been harping on this a little bit, but you'd be surprised what you would find if you did some digging. So I would encourage you to do that in your own fun, in time because it's kind of fun. You know, it's not, I don't know if it'll edify you to go out and walk the Christian walk, but it's interesting and it helps you to know how to think through things when you're looking at the scriptures. So, like I said before, that was a big sidetrack, but I think it's important so that we know, like, okay, something happened, whatever it was, whether you think it was angels and humans or the righteous line and the, not, and the sinful line, whatever happened... It became so bad on the earth that God said, I can't have it anymore. That's crazy to think about. Because you look at the world now and you're like, man, this world's terrible. There's uh, child molestation and rape and all these terrible things. And God is long-suffering. So if God's the same, how bad was it then? What was happening on the earth? I don't even want to think about what could possibly have been happening. So as we move on. It says in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. That's crazy. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. That is enough to pause and think about. Um, we, we don't want to look at these, these verses and just read through them and say, okay, let's get to the flood, let's get to the good stuff, the exciting part. We have to think about this in context of what is happening that God would be grieved. And you're like, well, I don't understand. If God made them, did he make a mistake? Certainly not. God knew from the beginning what was going to happen. I think God allows himself to have such an intimate relationship with his creation that there's a part of him that can be grieved in watching his very image bearers committing terrible acts. And I can't quite understand it. But I will say it's interesting because grief is an attribute that is assigned to all three persons of the Trinity in the the Bible. Uh, In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, this is Jesus Sorry, I skipped a couple verses, but Mark chapter 3, verse 5. 
says, this is Jesus speaking to, uh, or, uh, speaking about Jesus, sorry. And when he had looked around at them and with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to them, to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. So we see Jesus looking around at the Pharisees when he asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they're just hard hearted. They have the very son of God, the fullness of the Godhead present in their room. Jesus looking around saying, you're not going to let me heal this guy because it's the Sabbath? And it says he was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We talked about this when we went through Ephesians. The idea that God has put his spirit in us and by continuing to live in a manner that does not reflect the image of God in sin and debauchery and all those things, it grieves his spirit inside of us. That's crazy. Isaiah 63.8. And this is God saying, or speaking of God, it says, For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. See all those kind emotions that we see reflected in God? And we love those. We say, God loves me. He's afflicted with my affliction. And then when we read about God being grieved, we're like, I don't understand that. He knew what was going to happen. How could he be grieved? And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. You think about that. Like, think about your child, right? He carried them. People are always like, I used to change your diapers, man. And now what are you doing? You're going to mouth off to me? Who do you think you are? You love your child, but it breaks your heart that they behave in a way that does not respect and honor the things that you've done for them. And in verse 10 it says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. And you're like, whoa, that's weird. Why are you talking about this? But the good news is, in Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. God was so grieved by the sin of the world that he said, you know what? I'm going to see what that's like. I'm going to come into the world and I'm going to see the effects and feel the effects in a human frame. He didn't sin, but he looked around and saw the sin and he lived among the sin. The fact that his physical frame could die is evidence of the sin and the effect of Adam that we saw. It says, and we hid as it were our faces from him. And then surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So when we look at the, the flood and we talk about this, it's important that we realize that sin needs to be judged. Thankfully, God became our advocate in his son, Jesus Christ, bore that grief, that grief that he felt for the sins in the time of Noah, the grief all the way up to Moses, Sodom and Gomorrah, all those things that were terrible. And we look at them and like, wow, that Bible... It's like rated X, man. There's so much crazy stuff in here. Sons of God, daughters of men, what's going on? All that sin and all the sin that we commit, God said, man, that breaks my heart. I can't allow that sin to have an effect on my kids. I'm going to get down there and I'm going to take care of it once and for all. And he did. Praise God. So when we look at the, the flood, it's a type. It's true. It's historical. But it's a type of something even better. So let's take a look. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we have this guy, Noah. He stands out. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. There we see that again. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. You know what? This isn't the only time God determined to make an end of all flesh. Like I said, Jesus came on the cross. He conquered that. He put the old man to death. He determined to make him end to all flesh. And as Chris said on Sunday, our old man has been crucified. The only reason it comes back is because we like to listen to its whispers. And we like to, we like that zombie mentality. Everybody's into zombies and stuff like, oh, look, the, the scary hand is coming out from the, the grave site, right? We do that with our Christian walk sometimes. We're like, oh, this is kind of cool, I guess. Zombies, I like this. And I'm going to continue in my dead life instead of walking in the newness of life. In verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. There's a lot of types that people put on the ark, and I think they're actually really valid. I think that you can really make a case for that. Um, I will just point out, the word ark that's used to describe Noah's ark is only used to describe Noah's ark and the basket that Moses was put in. If you're familiar with the story of Moses, when he gets put in the little basket, the ark, and then he's put through the water and is saved out of water. That's like he's drawn out of the water. That's what his name means. Every other time we talk about the ark, like the ark of the covenant, it's a different word. And they actually aren't sure what the word for ark is here. It's tabah, which can be a, a chest of some kind or... But it's only used to describe Noah's Ark and Moses' basket. Most of the other references to the Ark in the Old Testament is the word Aron. I don't know if that's pronounced correctly, which is chest or Ark. So it's a similar word. It's just a little bit different. But what's interesting is that one time, and only one time, and I'm going to stretch this type a little bit, I understand. In Genesis 50, 26, the word shows up that we see as Ark of the Covenant and Ark. It says, so Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him and put... He was put in a coffin in Egypt. It's the same word. That word coffin is the same word as the ark. So just keep that in mind. I think that's really interesting. Um, and then gopher wood. Nobody knows what gopher wood is. I was re- researching it and researching the Hebrew and all that stuff. Nobody knows what gopher wood is. They say it's like cedar, I guess. But it's from an unused root word, and it probably means to house in. That's what they say. So he's going to make this ark, this coffin, basically, of something that's going to close people in, how, you know, provide a house for them, basically. And then it says that you're going to cover it inside and out with pitch. And the word cover is kafar, which means to, get this, make atonement. It's the same word. If you look in, um, in the Hebrew lexicon, that same word that they use to cover the ark is to make an atonement for. So that's pretty cool. And then pitch, what's actually used to seal up the cracks, is... Kofer, it's very similar to cover, and it's the price of a life or a ransom. It's pretty weird. So we have this ark, this coffin, essentially, and everybody makes Noah's ark as a big boat. But if you read the dimensions, it's a big rectangle, and it's not to sail. Not, Noah's not like, land ho, and we see in the movies and all that stuff. It's a big box that floats on the water, or a coffin, as it were. So, um, and then it to cover it with, or to make atonement, which is really interesting. And then what you, what's used to seal that is the price of a life. 
Isn't that crazy? The death of, you know, the idea of the coffin and being put into a coffin and dying in order to be saved from the, the death that's going on all the way outside of you and that atonement is being made and that it, the way that atonement's being made is the price of a life. I don't know. That's pretty crazy, I think. It, it ties it together pretty cool. It's the Jesus Christ right there. Um, so let's blow through some of this here. For behold, it says, oh, there's even more. People say like the window or the roof. That means something. The thir- it says that some people, and it's all conjecture. People are just trying to throw things up there to see if they stick sometimes. But it says that the lower second and third decks can be a type of the threefold nature of man, which I know we talked about, which is kind of crazy. It could be like body, soul, spirit. You can go really crazy with it. But some of it's pretty exciting to think about. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your, wife, uh, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and every creeping thing in the ground. According to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And that can't be overstated either. He didn't leave it undone. The things that God said to do, he didn't leave it undone. We see plenty of examples where God says do something and someone does it halfway and what ends up happening. Imagine if Noah was like, I decided to make the ark only... 299 cubits. Is that okay? I know you said 300, but hey, I was short on wood. No. When God gave a command, he made sure to follow it to the letter. I heard somebody say that the moment we know what to do is right, or we're faced with a decision, and the moment we... I'm butchering it. Essentially what he was saying is when you know that you're to do something that's right and you hesitate, you've already made the decision to do something wrong. When you're faced with a decision between right and wrong and you hesitate, you've already made the decision to do wrong. Because we need to do what God commands. We need to follow what God has done. And Noah did that. And you guys are familiar with the story, so I'm just going to kind of read through this and point out things as we go. Probably won't get to chapter 8, um, but what's good is I'm teaching next week and there's two genealogies that we'll have to read through, so we'll, we'll speed through those next week. <laughs> um, so it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And I just have to make an editorial comment. If you haven't caught on yet, I like the environment and I like trees. And I like oxygen because I have respiratory problems and I need oxygen. God didn't destroy the earth because we were mean to the trees. I know that Hollywood thinks that he did, but it's not true. It says that the thoughts of man were evil all the time. That's why God destroyed the earth. And Noah was righteous, and that's why he was saved. Noah wasn't saved because he was really nice to the environment. Sorry. <laughs> you may have liked that movie, and that's great. But uh, I actually argue, I, I thought about just showing the movie, because that would just tell the story, and I wouldn't have to teach it all. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, I had to break it up a little bit there. I know I've been getting kind of heavy here. Uh, verse 2, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. So you're like, man, God is mean. He's going to kill everybody. 
Did you know that he said, when he said, my spirit's not going to abide in man forever, the days of man are going to be 120 years? That doesn't mean that he's going to... A lot of people say, well, that's why people don't live as long anymore. No, what he was saying is, man has 120 years before I'm going to destroy them. The time of man is 120 years. He's saying, that's, all, that's when the flood's going to come. Because you know it took Noah 100 years to build the ark. So God is long-suffering. And it said that in the verse that we looked at in, uh, I believe it was First Peter 3.18. It talks about the long-suffering of God when he waited in the days of Noah. What was he waiting for? I thought God decided he was going to destroy the earth. Well, there's a lot of times in Scripture where God's going to do something and then the, the, God allows man to make things right. You see, Moses, God says to Moses, he's going to destroy Israel and start over with Moses, which isn't uncommon because that's what we're talking about here. He's destroying the world and starting over again with Noah. And Moses says, no, blot me out and save them. These are your people. And it says that God changed his mind or repented. And everybody gets up in arms. What does that mean? How can God change his mind? I think God sometimes puts those things in place for us to act. You know what I mean? Just like he put the garden, he put the tree in the garden. The tree was fine. It was the decision of man that made it wrong. They decided to go outside of what God had for them. So it's interesting when we look at this. Um, where did I leave off? Verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Again, it says that. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, again, you see, not only did he give him 120 years, but there were seven more days. He said, go into the ark. In seven days, it's going to rain. What were the people doing watching Noah build this boat in the middle of nowhere? Up to this point, I don't think it had ever really rained. We saw that the, 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 it said in earlier when Chris was teaching in creation about how the dew came up from the, the ground and there had been no rain on the earth. So when he said, hey, it's going to rain, you better get right or get left, as they say. Uh, they were probably like, what? It's going to what? It's going to schnick rain? They didn't know what it was. They didn't know what rain was. So they're all mocking him. And if... Have you ever seen the movie Evan Almighty? I think it's actually kind of funny because you see it in its context, and he's like, I'm going to build an ark. And everybody's like, what? And they just like, they think he's an idiot. And it's kind of true. That's probably what happened. And it says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And Chris talked about this when he talked about creation, about the waters that God set above the earth, the firmament, the expanse that he stretched out. And he didn't say that it was good at that time. And it was just a thought, you know, like just to think, like, why didn't it say that? One of the explanations was maybe God knew that at, there would be a time when those waters would come down. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but it's interesting to note those things. And rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. I was at work yesterday, and the rain was smashing against my window, and I was like, man, I can't even see. This is crazy. 40 days and 40 nights, rain. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, and all of the flesh in which the, there was the breath of life and those that entered, male and female, 
went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. There was no handle on the inside of the ark. Noah couldn't close that door, and he couldn't open that door. It was God who did the shutting in. And that's another interesting type, because we see Jesus saying, I am the door. If anybody wants to come in, you enter by me. And it also, in I believe it's Matthew, I forget where, Matthew 24, I think, where it talks about the parable of the virgins, when they're all running to the door after they get called for the wedding, and they, the door had been shut, and they couldn't get in. They said, let us in. And it's like, no, we don't know who you are. You know, we see that over and over again. People are going to knock and say, and, and Chris talked about that. <laughs> it's funny how all these things tie together, but talked about that. Who's knocking at your door? The door of faith is open. The door of entrance into the ark, into salvation, is open to all. But there comes a time when God says, the door is shut. Um, thankfully, the offer of salvation is still available. And we're called to be the preachers of righteousness, as it says. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, so the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Mount Everest was underwater. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. So all the fishes survived because they were in the water. They were like, woohoo, party! I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> is that blasphemous? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, but the, the breath of life, those were the ones. Because people will sure say, oh, I thought God killed all the animals. What about the fish? Well, the Bible doesn't say that he killed the fish. So you can tell them to read the Bible. And then they'll get saved. It's great. It works out. Uh, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. I read that already. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And we'll have to stop there. We'll do chapter 8 next week with 9, 10, and 11. Um, <laughs> So what is this talk? Uh, what, what, how do we take this? How do we apply this to our life? If you could put up Hebrews eleven seven, we see the hall of faith, and we heard about Enoch, and we looked at that, and then we see Noah by faith. Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By building that ark. And saying, this is the way in, he was essentially condemning the world's actions. Because God was going to destroy it. And he became an heir of righteousness. How? Because he believed, it says, in something he had not seen. He moved. He allowed his belief to turn into action. And then he built the ark. It wasn't the other way around. And God, it says, uh, in 1 Peter 3.18, we looked at this verse before. But I'll point to this, because this is important to tie it together. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Um, actually, if you guys could turn to First Peter 3, I apologize. I forgot. I didn't put the full passage in here because it was a little too long, and I wanted to have you guys turn there. First Peter 3.18. It's okay. We're wrapping up here, I promise. First uh, Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, which we, we looked at this verse before when we were talking about the angels and all that stuff, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. God was being patient, man. And it says, and some people would inter- some scholars believe that when it's saying that the spirit of Christ was actually being what Noah was doing there, that he was inheriting, I'm sorry, he was an heir of the righteousness, and by acting on his faith, he was demonstrating the very spirit of Christ as a, a testimony. He was preaching the gospel, as it were, of salvation to the world, even though Christ had not come as a man and died on the cross. It was the same spirit that was testifying of God as the way of salvation. And that's how some people interpret this. And it says, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a, con- a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's not saying you have to get baptized in order to be saved. What he's saying is when we place our faith in Jesus, we are baptized into his death. We are baptized into his spirit. And by that, we now have a good conscience. And it's because of the resurrection. When we come back up out of the water and we are a type of the resurrection that Jesus has, that is the idea when he's talking about they were saved through water. The ark, that coffin, that atonement, the, uh, the price of life, as we saw how that ark was prepared, with the gopher wood and the pitch, and it was covered over, that was Jesus. The way of salvation was Jesus. Um, in Romans 6, and this will be the last verse for the evening, Romans 6, 3, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Did you not know that? That when you were baptized into Jesus, it was into his death? And then on into verse 4, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Just like, um, just like Noah went into the coffin, as it were, and was saved out of that uh, flood. Just like Jesus was born and wrapped in swaddling clothes, which is the grave clothes. As we were baptized into his death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And we'll see this next week when we talk about the ark settling on a specific day. And there's a lot of interesting aspects to that as well, about the tying in of the, the people leaving the ark and, and starting a new life, how it pictures the resurrection life that we get to experience. So um, I appreciate your patience, and hopefully you'll come back next week um, to find out what happens. Because I don't know. Noah's stuck in the water somewhere. Uh, <laughs> so uh, let's pray. Thank you, guys. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience of these folks. And um, there's just so much to cover, so much of your word and so much that can be found to, uh, to speak to us of your son and of his sacrifice. We just pray that you bless our time of fellowship this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.